Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. Our show is sponsored by Moo, which makes things that help you stand out and look great. Moo has a new line of business cards, Moo Letterpress, that combines classic craftsmanship and modern technology. You can learn more at Moo.com. Letterpress printing goes with gramophones, running boards, men in hats. That list of throwback pleasures comes from a great article last month in the New York Times Magazine about the very well-hyped boxing match between Floyd Mayweather Jr. and Manny Pacquiao. What is a running board anyway, Michael? A running board, uh, for those who don't know, is a feature of old-fashioned, old-timey, like 1930s cars. Uh, it was sort of the thing you would step on as you would get into the car. Um, so it, what, what you would picture is a guy with like a Tommy gun jumping on like the side of a car and shouting at the driver, follow that car, and then holding like the Tommy gun and hanging onto the side of the car while standing on this thing. That's what I believe a running board is. So pure film noir. It's very film noir, and I think that's why that article kind of invoked that litany of uh, old-fashioned things. Things. Boxing somehow kind of seems to come at us out of the past, even though it is still a very contemporary and very uh, lucrative sport as practiced today. And just before we get into boxing, let me just say that on the subject of men in hats, uh, fedoras, <laughs> which is really the kind of go-to fashion statement for anybody in a film noir, uh, I absolutely love them. But my children, when they were little, could not watch any black and white movie with men in hats because they thought that one man in a hat was the other man in the hat. <laughs> really, it is incredibly like, uh, you know, kind of homogenizing thing uh, in terms of, of looking at, at men of a certain period. In a way, that probably was um, one of the functions of fedoras, right? It was supposed to kind of regularize everyone, have everyone fit in together neatly. Make you and look even like every man. Make you look like every man, exactly. And I know, and nowadays, of course, um, if you wear a fedora, and I confess, and this is a damning, damning, You do wear a fedora, yeah, Michael. You wear a strong wear a one. It's how we recognize but, you on the but, street. But, but, but it's exactly, and now you do it as a, a hipster affectation, which is humiliating and terrible. But I do it because I'm, um, well, I do it because it is a hipster affectation, but also because I'm, I don't have much hair on my head and um, don't like to get sunburned. And I just feel like a man should wear a fedora because he's not fully dressed unless he's wearing one appropriate for the season. You're never fully dressed without a smile. And a fedora. So, Michael, uh, really good point about the hipster affectation. Do you think boxing is a hipster affectation? I mean, it's so analog. It's such a sort of binary opposition right there on screen. Is that a throwback that has the same kind of cachet as wearing a fedora? Maybe it's a throwback. Maybe it's not. Um, it is something that inspires and has inspired fantastic writing, fantastic art, even fantastic design through the years. Uh and and it's at the same time very populist, very kind of like a, you know fundamental sort of quote unquote entertainment. Watching two guys beat each other up, uh, but you know I remember as a kid. One of my favorite paintings in my hometown museum, the Cleveland Museum of Art, was uh, George Bellows' painting that I don't have to look up. Uh, the name of it was a stag at Sharky's, and I didn't even know what that meant, but it's a fantastic picture of two guys beating each other up. And, of course, Bellows has a great painting, I think, at the uh, at the Whitney Dempsey in Furpo. And so a lot of what I knew about boxing, my dad was not a boxing fan either, although he was a fedora-wearing, non-hipster, non-hipster. Uh, 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 unironic fedora-wearing gentleman of the uh, late 50s, early 60s. 
and uh, but he um, he would watch football, baseball, but I don't remember a boxing match on TV or discussed in our house. But that was quite different uh, this past month, where the whole world seemed to be talking about this uh, uh, Mayweather-Pacquiao fight. You didn't watch it on pay-per-view, did I did you? not, but I've read about it, and um, I think it's a really kind of mesmerizing uh, concept. It, weren't you punched in the face once? <laughs> yeah. Were you punched in the face for wearing a fedora at the age of 12? Almost. Very, very close. Good guess. Uh, you, I think you can picture me really clearly as a child. It's a famous story. I've regaled my children with this story a few times. Um, and and, and as, a, as a man... As a male, I remember like reading repeatedly these um, admonitions that uh, one of the responsibilities as a man was like, along with like knowing how to change a tire and things like that, was the ability to defend oneself with one's fist if need be. And uh, I remember reading that and thinking, my way of dealing with this will be to avoid any possible occasion where I might have to do that because I, the idea of it just kind of like freaked me out. I was very, very nerdy as a kid. And and my nerdiness, in fact, led to my one um, pugilistic incident. Wearing a fedora didn't help, I'm sure. <laughs> no, no, I was in a... Uh, uh, I was in like an English class in um, seventh grade, say it was junior high school back in suburban Cleveland. And um, the teacher would put up a vocabulary word every day on the blackboard that we were supposed to learn. And one day the word was pugilist. No, no, no. You keep trying to, no, you, you, keep, you keep guessing wrong. Now you're, go, now, now you're getting I'm so too, fascinated. Forget you know, me. So, so I was, uh, <laughs> she would put up this word every day. And then, like, one of the kind of teacher's pet kind of girls one time said said this one day, um, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, these words are so easy. Could you give us harder words? And then, oddly enough, uh, the um, uh, the teacher called for an open discussion on this subject. And um, there was a, a, a lot of dissension about this. And the compromise that was reached was that um, there would be, like, the regular word we put up every day on the board, but then a optional voluntary harder word will also be put up there that you could learn as well but only if you wanted to and uh she said well does everyone agree with that let's raise your hand if you like that idea at that point the kid sitting in front of me whose name was mickey turned around and said to me beirut if you vote for that harder word i'll kill you (laughs) (laughs) and i looked at him like i was so startled and i said but mickey it's voluntary, and you know. And, and now think about it. He didn't know what that meant, really, and he, and he just kind of he just kind of glared it has at me. Too many with like, syllables with absolute like you know hatred. And then the teacher uh, said, um, "Okay, raise your hands if you want the the hard, harder word." And I kind of like murmuring wordlessly. I mean, soundlessly with my lips forming the words "voluntary." I realized that this is one of those moments of truth, you know, where you have to stand up for what you believe, even though you're putting yourself personally at peril. So I I raised my hand. Mickey turned around, saw that I had raised my hand and just kind of shook his head sadly and then turned around to face the front of the class again. And then the next day I saw him in the hallway and he walked up to me and punched me in the nose and said, I told you. (laughs) 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 I was so so surprised. Uh, My nose wasn't broken or anything. It it 
bled a little bit. And of course, I didn't rat him out because I sort of I thought, well, this is the price you pay for uh, for having the courage of your convictions. I don't remember a single goddamn difficult word that I learned as a result of this brutal beating I took. Um, but it was a lesson in um, and standing up for what you believe. Standing in. Standing up for what you believe. And and where is Mickey today? Who where knows? is Mickey today? Well, if you're out there, Mickey, go to hell. <laughs> so at any rate, back. To, but let's 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 get back to back to boxing as a boxing. as a throwback yeah. activity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Five years in the making, and the time has come for the bout you've all been waiting for. I want you to keep this fight clean at all times. Show good sportsmanship. Protect yourself at all times. And what I say, you must obey. Good luck to both of you. Touch them up. God bless. What I know of this uh, fight and the two uh, boxers who participated almost comes entirely from this, from this fantastic piece in The New Yorker. And why was it so uh, fantastic? Well, the, the writer, uh, uh, Kelofa Sana, he touches on the kind of throwback um, attitude of the sport, but also gets right into the contemporary spectacle of it. So image-based, plays right into the biographies of the two boxers, uh, Floyd Money Mayweather and uh, Manny Pacquiao, and, and sort of as they were cast in a classic sort of evil versus good, respectively, kind of showdown. Uh, the backgrounds of the two were really interesting. You, you know, it's a, it's a classic thing where I think most fight enthusiasts were actually a little bit disappointed in the outcome of the, where the fight itself didn't seem to excite people that much in, in a very contemporary right, it's way. The it's the anticipation of yeah, the yeah, denouement. Yeah. And I yeah, think yeah. you're right. It's, it's like horse racing, right? It was like so it's over before it starts. It's so fast. Yeah, exactly. And it's so much yeah. about the spectacle around the spectacle and the theater exactly. of it, the sort of yeah. tragic theater of it, which is, I think Joyce Carol Oates called it that in that book she wrote on boxing many years ago. Joyce Carol Oates writing about boxing, you know, great great paintings about boxing, great writing about boxing. It really is kind of amazing how this sport that you assume legendary writers and fine artists and even designers probably are ill-equipped to practice themselves, still respond to so viscerally. And why do you think? I think there's just something so physical about it. It has a built-in narrative. It sort of is a story that almost tells itself. You know, I'm thinking also of, uh, you know, uh, that series of covers that George Lois did over the years for Esquire. He kept returning to the subject over and over again. You know, uh, I'm sure many of our listeners can picture in their minds uh, Sonny Liston as Santa Claus, uh, the, the famous one of the last man left dead, left seemingly dead in the ring in an abandoned, uh, in an empty uh, arena on the canvas in the ring. And, um, and of course, the most famous one probably, uh, uh, which is uh, Muhammad Ali as St. Sebastian. All Esquire covers, and you try to imagine kind of a metaphoric boxing cover on uh, uh, for any magazine today. It's sort of hard to picture, but uh, just as a, a kind of uh, metaphor for, you know, the conflicts of daily life and the kind of characters who embody those conflicts, it kind of is a remarkable thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is a remarkable thing. And, and the one thing that's changed, I think, since Joyce Carol Oates wrote that book, and, and I have to say this as the uh, resident female here on this podcast, is that women in boxing is now a thing. And uh, mm -hmm. there's a woman who, very interesting filmmaker, photographer, journalist named Sue J. Johnson, who actually worked for me early on my very first design office, before Winter House, before Design Observer, before anything. She had just come out of Harvard, and she was a photographer, and she was 
the best designer I knew, she was the one who stayed late at night and would sketch mm. things. And she became very interested in women boxers and women boxing being now, I think, an approved Olympic thing. So there, there, there's a film she's made. We can put a link to it on our site where she's followed a young 17-year-old woman boxer who's this hopeful, this Olympic hopeful. Mm. And what I think is so um, captivating about this is that so much of what you talk about, about the, use the word epic, which is really what it is. It's specific. You don't have to know about the rules of it's like I don't know the rules of sports sometimes can be kind of hard to follow right. but the thing about boxing it's it's a punch it's two people it's an arena there's something sort of beautifully simple and geometric about that whole setup it's very theatrical they're above you're below you're there in the ring you're it's theater in the round and it was always seen as something that really was uh, the story of, of violence. And even it, it, it's borne out in these, this New Yorker article, I think, uh, that you mentioned, that you hear about the history of violence in these men's families, that it's a very male sport. And what I think is interesting about um, Johnson's film, which is called T-Rex, Hmm. is this idea that, you know, women are fighters and women may fight differently, but that maybe that sport actually has some kind of theatricality that is not singularly male. But it's very visual. I think you're absolutely right that people, you, you can't unsee it. You can't not watch it. Yeah, and does any word uh, have kind of a finality as a knockout in a way? There's just something about that uh, for, for a way for a sports event to conclude. I mean, there are winners and losers, but something about, you know, a TKO is just so, does have that kind of finality that's kind of amazing, right? And I always loved the fact that uh, Tobias Fair Jones and, and Jonathan Heffler years ago did a <laughs> did a font family, right, for Sports <laughs> Illustrated. Yeah. Uh, it was called Knockout, and all yeah. the weights were based on there's welterweight and sumo, and and uh, and they're all sort of the weights of the family. Uh, it's a wonderful <laughs> typeface, and it was such a great name for the typeface, totally based on that that word. Yeah, no, it's really great, you know, and um. um you know the uh, the images that we have of sporting events and in um, boxing in particular, whether they're paintings or photographs, they're some of the most amazing representation of sport and physical physical activity whereof have been of boxing matches. From Louisville, Kentucky, he's wearing white trunks. He weighs two oh six. The heavyweight champion of the world, Muhammad Ali. There's a wonderful essay uh, that a guy named Dave Mondi published in the Iowa Review. It showed up on Slate recently about that photograph. It's from the famous fight, uh, May 25th, 1965, uh, Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston. We're waiting for that bell for round one. Here we go. It's photographed by a guy named Neil Leifer. Uh, did you see this picture, Michael? Oh, yeah, and I'm sure, even if you don't care that much about, even don't care at all about boxing, but if you know anything about photography, it's a color photograph. Uh, Liston is on the ground. Ali is over him, fists raised, shouting down at him. And he's screaming at him, actually, as it turns out in the match. He's screaming, get up, get up, you sucker. Because he, uh, one of the things that's very controversial about the fight itself was that um, uh, Liston seemed to go down very quickly. And uh, even Ali was not certain that he had actually hit him and so there's been a lot of completely unresolved speculation about whether Sonny Liston took a dive to make up for money he owed to organized crime or something else but there's something about this picture
Well, for justice. one thing, these guys are constantly in motion. I mean, each yeah, of these yeah. moments in the fight, they move so quickly, and it's almost like time stands still in that photograph. Time stands yeah, still yeah. in any photograph, but particularly sports photographs, and I think especially and essentially something like boxing. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's so, you know, the, the, he's standing straight up, the guy's lying down, there's two of them, everything is in focus, you can see the eyes of the people in the background, the color is extraordinary. It's hard to imagine this was taken half a century ago. In the article, it says there's a lot we don't know about this picture, and it's really remarkable. The, the match, as opposed to uh, uh, Mayweather-Pacquiao, this match was like a, a sparsely, relatively sparsely attended match up in uh, Lewiston, Maine. Neil Leifer, the guy that shot the picture, was Sports Illustrator's second-string photographer. There's a guy named uh, uh, Herb Scharfman, who was like the lead photographer, who had the best position to photograph the uh, uh, the fight. And then um, it just so happened that when uh, Liston went down, Leifer was in the best position to get the shot. And the shot he gets is like Caravaggio. It is so beautifully lit. It's so beautifully composed with a classic sort of triangular composition of Ali vertical, Liston horizontal at the base of the triangle. And what makes it really interesting uh, is that uh, Leifer was one of the few people at that match, and and I think the only one from Sports Illustrated that was shooting ectochrome, which is pretty new back then. It required strobes to go off, and the strobes like did not go off every second. If you're used to photographing digitally today, it's hard to imagine kind of like having to wait for your lighting source to kind of recharge so you could get another shot in. So the fact that he happened to get this exact shot at that exact moment, and it's so sharp, it's so clear, you feel like you are right there. It just seems unearthly. And interviewed for years afterwards, he, you know, Lifer would just say, who went on to become a really acclaimed photographer, uh, went on to say, um, you know, it, the whole thing was just dumb luck. So a lot of it also has to do, Jessica, and this is something we've talked about in the past, about how a single image can acquire a kind of power um that iconic shot, power iconic power so what's funny is that shot wasn't um uh does not uh, tell the whole story it doesn't <laughs> tell the whole story and and it wasn't on the cover of sports illustrated the week they were reporting about the fight it wasn't like the sports photograph of the year it wasn't uh, you know it, it took a while for it to kind of emerge as an acclaimed photograph and now it's uh it's you know people some people would argue it's the best sports photograph ever taken in history and it's a, but it was, and it's seminal it's become yeah. kind of represent, representative of its genre yeah, but it, this article, which I can't recommend enough, it's a beautiful, beautiful, uh, beautifully this, written. Uh, Dave Mondi piece, beautifully written, beautifully researched, and kind of brings together sort of this great kind of um, history, not just of, of sport and uh, what it takes to understand what was leading up to that particular match, but it really talks about the role that images play in our culture and how, and, and in a way, um, you know, if, if you sort of see his like Leifer versus Sharfman, the first string photographer, uh, the, his rival for the shot is actually in the photograph he takes you can sort of see <laughs> him so great. You, can, you can see him between Ollie's legs and so the whole thing you know you have like these two guys beating each other up uh, with their fists up in the in the ring and then you have these two photographers who are competing with each other with their cameras you know at the base of the ring and you know it seemed like at the moment of the fight that uh, lifer wasn't the winner but then it emerged over time that indeed he was and now a word from our sponsor this episode of Design Observer is sponsored by Moo, which helps you stand out and look great. Moo has a new stationery collection, Moo Letterpress, that combines classic craftsmanship and the modern print technology Moo is known for. You can see examples of Moo Letterpress at moo.com. 
So speaking of amazing photographs and amazing photographers, we lost a champion of that art last month as well, uh, Mary Ellen Mark, one of the greatest uh, uh, photographers uh, of our time, passed away. She actually died on May 25th, which would have been the 50th anniversary of that famous photograph we just talked about, about Muhammad Ali and Sonny Liston. Jessica, you met her once, right? I did. I met her on the street. Really? Uh, yeah. And I met her on the street, walking down the street in New York. Uh, I was with Melissa Harris, who uh, is quoted actually in the New York Times obituary, and who's my best friend from college. I've known Melissa since I was 19 years old. So Melissa is, is uh, credited with introducing us. But what I remember, it was right after my book on scrapbooks came out. And Mary Ellen Mark who's so well-known, could easily have completely dismissed me as this friend of Melissa's who wrote a silly little book on scrapbooks. And she did, in fact, exactly the opposite. She was so interested. She asked a hundred questions. And I promised to send her a book when I got home, which I did, and she wrote me a beautiful thank you letter. And it wasn't really until I was reading all these obituaries so many years later, um, I guess it's about eight, nine years later, that I realized the reason she liked my book or was interested in my mm. work was because she had this just endless empathy for forgotten people. And that's, that's what right. really comes across in her body of work. And, and I think one of the most telling examples is that she's really very well known for many things. She's a street photographer. She was uh, constantly looking for not the underbelly of culture the way, for example... Diane Arbus was. It was never... Or Ouija. Or Ouija. Uh, yeah, Some people, yeah. you, you often feel sometimes in looking in that work of those those kinds of photographers that, I wouldn't say it's exploitative, but, but there's a... But there's, pur- a, there's a distance, right? There's a distance. Yeah, and I think as the, the viewer has a kind of almost prurient interest in looking mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. the afflicted, um, the infirm, the idea that, that uh, you know, we're, we're all of us so visual, particularly at this moment in, in history, anybody with an Instagram account has visual literacy that is going through the roof. So everybody's taking pictures. Everybody's looking at pictures. And those black and white photographs really become kind of, they, they stop you in your tracks. They tend to be, you know, the, they're large, they're impactful. And she, I think, was, was a photographer who was interested in impact, but she went about it in a way that was very quiet and very persistent and very sympathetic to the conditions by which other people's lives revealed themselves to her. And and the most telling example to me is the stories that she uh, started to look at with this um, woman, young woman, 13 years old, when she start, first started photographing her named Tiny, who mm-hmm. was a runaway and later a prostitute on the streets of Seattle. And she went back many years later and found Tiny again. And now, you know, uh, older, uh, married, with many children, uh, not all from the same father, um, uh, very different than the way she'd been in those early years. Tiny was very overweight and living, I think, on welfare. And, you know, she went back not to tell the story of, of, a, of an exploitation of somebody who lived her life in a very sort of public way because of those initial photographs. But she told the story out of a real kind of love for her subject. And that's what I think really is, is so evident in all of her work. It's a, it's a great loss that, that that kind of photography, really, from one woman's really un, unrelenting eye for so many years, is now, now the stuff of history books. So we've lost Mary Ellen Mark. Do you think we've also lost that particular kind of tradition of documentary photography? Does it have to do with the fact that the magazines say that you should sustain them are really not there anymore to 
be venues for that work? I don't think it's the vehicles. I think it's the people. And I think that's what she showed. You know, so she was interested in my book because I didn't write about the scrapbooks of the uniquely famous. I wrote about these forgotten people. And and just like we were talking about that photograph as one image, what's so great about that that piece in in the IRA review is that he takes that one image and he just digs deeper and deeper and deeper. So instead of coming in with a macro look at all of humanity told through a body of work, he just looks at that one photograph and doesn't let go, like a dog mm-hmm. with a toy, but he does it in yeah, this loving yeah. way. That's what she did with her photographs, right? So I think it's about the person. I think it's about, you know, Sue J. Johnson going after the 17-year-old boxer and Mary Ellen Mark going back to visit Tiny and that, that piece in the mm-hmm. eye review about that one photograph. And so, you know, we live at a time where we tend to think about the vehicles by which our work is distributed and who's got the new killer app and our magazine's right, right. dead and our book's alive and who's, who's on television, who's in the movies. But in fact, it's really the story of people. And that story is told one person at one time, one photographer capturing one one event, one moment in a fight at a time. And I think that's what, maybe that's the real throwback, right? Is, is Can we get back to that? Can we get back to that moment where somebody just says, you, you know, you, you got to go deep. You got to keep going. There was a very funny uh, thing that happened uh, as uh, David Letterman uh, was um, in his run-up to his last shows. One of my favorite comedians, um, uh, Norm MacDonald, came on and did what he said was going to be his last stand-up routine in Dave Letterman's uh, honor. And uh, Norm MacDonald goes into this riff where he's talking about um, how there's like one photograph of his grandfather you know, here's my grandfather, here's this photograph that was taken of him, and he's like dressed up, and he's like uncomfortable posing for hours, presumably in front of some camera. And he says, can you imagine what it's be like, like 50 years from now? In the future, of course, it'll be different. 50 years from now, people will be going like, hey, you want to uh, see 100,000 pictures of my great-grandfather? <laughs> When everything is so documented, uh, do these images cease to have any meaning? How is it possible to even dig deeply into a photograph when it's just one of thousands or, or millions even? You know, there's something about the, the decisiveness that journalists used to have when they were working with, you know, the kind of limiting technology that demanded, you know, the decisive moment, so-called, uh, that you just wonder whether or not the relative... Um, proficiency that digital reproduction gives you sort of also kind of removes the requirement or the responsibility of really making a choice. So the, the decisive moment actually was, um, it's, it's uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson who came yeah. up with that title, right? And it's and it's true. I mean, really, you look at these things. What was it that took you back to that George Bellows painting? Okay, painting's yeah. not a photograph, but it's a moment in time that's been captured yep. by the artist for a particular purpose. I always thought it was funny and, and really so true that, that serious photographers, real credited, you know, do not attempt this at home, I am a seasoned professional photographers, refer to the kind of endless selfie culture of people photographing way too much as a fire hosing, mm-hmm. which is sort of wielding your, your smartphone or your camera as some kind of tool, like hoping that the idea that the decisive moment comes later in the editorial process, which it never really does, as opposed to moving the camera, moving the lens, waiting, being patient, listening, looking, the kinds of things I think actually designers do quite well, right? That the editing process isn't an after-the-fact endeavor. It's an intentionality that goes into looking. And that's what these photographers did so beautifully. I mean, I think in the case of the sports photograph, it's maybe a little different because you really have no control over what happens in that moment of spectacle. But you play a really important role in a process that's ongoing and moving quickly. Um, And I think that civilian photographers may not understand this implicitly. (laughs) 
Yeah, and I think that's it's it is. I think it's easy for. Um, I, I find it easy for myself to kind of romanticize that our Cartier Bresson, you know, decisive moment ethos. It's sort of um, contradicted a little bit if you ever see, you know, the contact sheets that were developed even, you know, with regular analog photography, there'd be lots and lots of shots taken. And there's that one that's just as simply circled, this is the one. So it was, it was never just kind of like you get one shot, take it or else, you know, there was always, um, if not a fire hose and at least kind of a, um, you know, a squirt gun kind of uh, worth of imagery kind of like coming out of, of most photographers but still you sort of um sense that there was a kind of deliberation possible that simply um you can't quite get right now and i also wonder whether or not the kind of connection that you describe mariel and mark establishing with their subjects uh you know that really does have to do with a kind of deliberate a kind of deliberation that goes into lifting the camera and training it on the person you're talking to, gaining their trust so they open up to you. And I think um, that connection may not be as easily made if you're just kind of like shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting and just amassing all these digital images, you know. Unless you're somebody um, like Vivian Meyer. <laughs> I always wonder what someone like Vivian Meyer would have done with a digital camera because she really was a street photographer who never stopped shooting. And, and really, she, was, she would have been a great war correspondent because she was kind of just fearless. And she also shot with a Roliflex, which had the viewfinder in the top which yeah. meant that she could get people looking straight at her. It was kind of like that Errol Morris camera, right? Yeah. She had the, yeah, yeah. she could get people looking straight at her who didn't know that they were looking straight at her because they were looking at her camera in a funny way. Yeah, but yeah. I, And I think there are people like, you know, Errol Morris is actually a really kind of interesting I, a person that way who's really interested in getting to the soul of somebody by having that camera just sit on them and interview them. And it may be that video is the way out for contemporary photographers who are somewhere between fire hosing and the decisive moment to understand what mm. it is to actually do dig deeper. Maybe maybe it is video where yeah. the kind of conversation, the dialogue between lens and subject and photographer and interviewer and and the idea that there's a dialogue comes back to it as opposed to the binary opposition of those two guys on that in that f incredible photograph from 1965 which is so much of a different kind of dialogue. I mean the fight metaphor in the photograph is I think what makes that photograph so compelling. Yeah, yeah. It's you know it's static but it's moving and you know it's not going to be static for long and it's that kind of stasis against permanence that I think also makes photography such a compelling proposition when you look at you know all of the technologies that have come about in these last 50 years particularly in this in this window of time we're talking about today and how much has changed. There's certain things that are just indelible and don't change, and photography really seems to be one of them. I mean, a decisive moment, a great photograph is still a great photograph. Yeah, 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 it is. Whether you're wearing a fedora or not. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and you have, like, you have Apple running these ads that have like very handsome image, and it's just the caption is taken on... Um taking on iPhone 6, and it sort of is elevating, um, you know, those images up to the level of, uh, of great photography. And, uh, of course, you know, the typical pictures that are taken on iPhone 6s are nowhere near as nice, uh, nowhere near as artistic usually, but uh, uh, they're, they're much more egalitarian and much more democratic, and who's to say that they don't capture their own sort of decisive moments, some of which may endure just as long. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we talked about today, including the Dave Mondi article on the IRA Review and Mary Ellen Mark's photography. 
What you won't find is any record on our site of me being punched in the nose by my classmate Mickey that was not recorded in any way that I know of, thank God. I'm sure we could recreate that if we get enough letters from our readers. Where is George Bellows today? He could probably do a gorgeous painting of that epic bout back in the day, but uh, we will do without that. Uh, Instead, um, just uh, between episodes, you can keep up with us on Facebook, on Twitter, and let us know what you thought of this show and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash theobservatory. That's designobserver.com slash theobservatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune into our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Big thank you to Moo for sponsoring this episode of The Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you next time.